0: talking about the law of God, and we've come specifically to the question of the unity of God's law. Do we really want to say now that the same standards that held in the case of the Old Testament hold in case of the New? I've argued and argued and argued and argued that yes, we do. But challenges come from dispensationalism as it teaches that law stands in contrast to grace, and we live under grace and therefore not under law. We also get challenges from Lutheranism that says that law stands over against gospel. And since we live in the age of the gospel, not the age of the law, we don't keep these Old Testament commandments. However, covenant theology has consistently taught over against Lutheranism and dispensationalism to the, has always held to the unity and coherence of biblical ethics against these two positions. That is, in general, the attitude of continuity between Old and New Testaments is a covenantal theological position that is distinctive just in light of the challenges of dispensationalism and Lutheranism. And as you know, my book, Theonomy and Christian Ethics, uh, carries out that covenantal position by arguing it in detail. But now, John Murray notes, we do have to answer the attacks on biblical ethics in its consistency, which arise from instances like divorce and polygamy. Now, what do you do, though, with cases of divorce and polygamy? Is it not the case that the standards of divorce in the Old Testament are different than the standards of divorce in the New, or the standards with respect to polygamy in the Old Testament are different than in the New? Now, let me give you three attitudes toward this uh, polygamy and divorce uh, problem area for the unity of biblical ethics. Uh, We're dealing with the questions of polygamy and divorce, with the suggestion that there's a difference between the Old Testament and the New on those questions. Now there are some positions that say monogamy was not imposed as yet in the Old Testament because there was then a necessity to replenish the earth. Shady argument. <laughs> Secondly, people say monogamy was a positive command, um, not spree, uh, that monogamy is a positive command and does not as such spring from God's holy nature as such. Thus, in different circumstances, you can find different um, regulations concerning marriage. So back in those, whatever the difference is, in those circumstances, polygamy was all right, and there's something about new circumstances today that makes polygamy wrong. Then there are those, thirdly, who would say, since upright men in the Old Testament were polygamous, and since the New Testament is relatively silent on the subject, we shouldn't take the standard of monogamy, uh, the standard of monogamy in the creation order, order too seriously.
1: (laughs) Now, any
0: any conservative Christians want to use these three arguments? (laughs) I'm telling you what they are because I I think I owe it to you to educate you and tell you what's going around in the world these days, but I'm not even going to bother with them because there's such obvious, glaring theological problems in each one. What is is, uh, Murray's position now? Uh, Coming down to somebody we can take a little more seriously. John Murray's position on this question is very similar to that of Carl Henry's as well. And uh, their position would be summarized in the following way. Monogamy is grounded in the creation ordinance and monogamy is reinforced throughout the Scripture, especially in the New Testament. Monogamy is a creation ordinance reinforced throughout the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. What we find in the Old Testament, these men say, are concessions, not reflections of the divine ideal. We don't find a reflection of God's ideal we find a concession to human sin in the Old Testament. But a progressive unfolding of God's will shows his demand for the restoration of that original monogamous standard in the New Testament. Okay. Let me go over Murray's position on polygamy now a little more in particular. Murray starts by asking this question. Is there one coherent, one consistent ethic set forth in the Bible, or do we rather find an antithesis with reversal and abrogation between Old Testament and New Testament in relation to marital affairs, polygamy and divorce? Have the canons of sanctioned conduct changed? Do we find a contrast between the criterion of the Old Testament and the criterion of the New? That's the question he poses. Then he says this polygamy and divorce were practiced without overt disapprobation by some of the Old Testament's most illustrious saints. There is no pronouncement of condemnation, no open censure of them. There is no disciplinary judgment, civil or ecclesiastical penalties against them. There was no explicitly revealed provision against it. That is, there was no uh, provision in the Bible, prohibition against it. And in fact, it is argued that Divorce and polygamy were, were given as a civil right in the Mosaic Law at Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 to 17, and Exodus 21, verses 9 and 10. All right, so Marie is saying polygamy and divorce were practiced without overt disapprobation. But now thirdly, he wants to say, nevertheless, they were still basically wrong. They were inherently wrong even under the Old Testament because they were violations of the creation ordinances. And as such, they were contrary to God's revealed will. They were inconsistent with God's standards of holy living. We must conclude that they were under God's judgment, even though there was no overt disapprobation. Then Murray says, fourthly, that when you read what Jesus said about divorce, you notice that divorce was, he said, Permitted, in the sense of tolerated. Okay, so, so polygamy and divorce, according to Murray, were permitted in the Old Testament but were not legitimate or sanctioned. God did not give his approval to them but he did forbear them. Why was this? Well, Murray's fifth point is, because of the perversity of the people, these two violations of God's marital standards were permitted. He says, due to the human hardness of heart, due to the hardness of the Hebrew heart, the original canons were not applied in practice in the Old Testament. Now, he gets this from Matthew 19, where Jesus deals with divorce, and he says, but for the hardness of their hearts, Moses permitted them to put away their wives. And Murray says that principle holds for divorce and can be applied to polygamy. That is, we learn here a pattern for resolving other difficulties between Old and New Testament. All right, he adds um, another point. The fact of progressive revelation, also the fact of the uh, progress of redemptive history, but progressive revelation relieves some of the tension here. Because he says the degree of revelation with a greater degree of revelation in the New Testament we find more severe judgment against sin. Therefore, although polygamy was not judged in the Old Testament, there is greater punitive sanction in the New Testament with the fuller revelation given. Fuller than what was originally found in the Old Testament. Moreover, Murray says the Holy Spirit now works more fully and efficaciously in the hearts of men today to bring greater conformity to the canon's of behavior which God wanted from the very beginning. And now Murray's conclusion, I'm giving you a very detailed analysis of his argument because I want you to understand its progress. Therefore, he concludes there is what he, and he uses the word basic agreement between Old Testament and New Testament. Murray wants to argue for basic agreement on these matters. And he says... The standards are the same, but there's a difference in toleration of the practice. Same standards, different toleration. In a nutshell, that's John Murray's argument. I think that's the best that can be done to portray his argument. I frankly believe it's the best argument that one can give, short of the theonomic position. Now, maybe you don't agree that the position is better, but my point is going to be I'm really giving you the prime example of what has to be answered if there's going to be an answer. So let's go over it real quickly again. Murray says polygamy and divorce were practiced without overt disapprobation. He gives some reasons why he believes that. He says that nevertheless, they were basically wrong because they were violations of the creation ordinances. Therefore, they were permitted or tolerated. Nevertheless, they were not sanctioned. There was not approval, there was just forbearance. Because of the perversity of the people, their hardness of heart, it was permitted in the Old Testament in practice. But with the fact of progressive revelation, a greater degree of revelation, and the greater work of the Holy Spirit, God now uh, expects his original standard to be kept. And his conclusion is, quote, there is basic agreement. Now, while I think there are some elementary truths incorporated in this the greater work of the Holy Spirit progressive revelation on and on there are some elementary truths there is also to be found in this position first unnecessary concessions to discontinuity between Old and New Testament there are unnecessary concessions concessions which the Bible does not require us to make and then secondly I think there are dangerous principles and unanswerable problems in what Murray has said Okay, I'm, I'm going to say the Bible doesn't force us to make these concessions and even more importantly what Murray has said raises some very dangerous theological principles Okay, let me deal with um, divorce first of all and then I'll deal with polygamy okay, the first example Murray gives is divorce and remember what he says is if we see how Jesus deals with divorce in Matthew 19 we can apply that same pattern of dealing to polygamy What does Jesus say, according to Murray, about divorce? According to Murray, Jesus says that divorce was permitted, was disapprobated, but God permitted it anyway because of the immaturity, the spiritual and ethical immaturity of the Hebrews, because of their hardness of heart. I would like to argue, and I do argue in theonomy, and you can follow it up there if you want to hear more, I'd like to argue that if you look at the divorce legislation of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 24, you will see that it does not allow divorce for a light cause. That specifically Deuteronomy 24 says that a man may divorce his wife for some, quote, unclean thing. The focus of that expression, unclean thing, is undoubtedly sexual, although it does have a broader connotation. An unclean thing is any abominable act in particular, abominable sexual behavior, but an abominable act, an unclean thing, a filthy thing. Now, if you'll do a word study in the Hebrew of the unclean thing and then do a word study of the word porneia or fornication in the New Testament, you will find out that they are functionally equivalent, that porneia stands for any broad immorality of a deep nature that is some gross immorality, However, it's focus that deals primarily with sexual immorality. However, it is broader than that. And I argued this in theonomy. Consequently, when Jesus says that a man is not to put away his wife except for the cause of fornication, it turns out that he's saying precisely what the Old Testament said, that a man was to put away his wife for an unclean thing. Because the unclean thing in fornication... Uh, really have the same uh, referent. Yes?
1: Why is it that they would divorce the woman if she wasn't, she would be put
0: to death anyway? Well, because in the Old Testament, not every case of uh, an unclean thing called for death. Not even every case of adultery called for death. You see, that's another thing. People come to this and have a generalized idea of what the Old Testament teaches, and we don't pay attention to the qualifications, and so we're led into logical mistakes. By the way, the fact that, um, and I argue this in theonomy, even if every case of adultery in the Old Testament did call for execution, the fact that Jesus says that only fornication is grounds for divorce would not mean that he disagreed that fornication was also a ground for execution. That's that's a logical mistake. Uh, To say that... um, The only ground for hauling me into traffic court is having a traffic accident. It's not to say that the only penalty I'll have from the traffic accident is going to court. I may also have to pay the other man. I may have to repair my car and all the rest. So when Jesus says the only ground for divorce is fornication, he does not thereby imply logically or exegetically that the only punishment for fornication is divorce. He says the only ground for divorce is this, he doesn't say that's the only doesn't—that's the only thing that's going to come to you if you uh, are engaged in fornication. Okay, now my point is Deuteronomy 24 teaches then what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19. The grounds for divorce are fornication or an unclean thing, to use the Hebrew. Now let me add this to it. When Jesus said, now the Pharisees, when, when they come to him and they say, can a man put away his wife for any cause? Jesus says, well, of course not. What does it say, you know? What did Moses say? That the man was to leave his family and cling to his wife, cleave to his wife there to be one flesh. And then the Pharisees say, well, why did, it, why did Moses then allow the, the giving of a bill of a divorcement? If you're going to appeal to the creation ordinance, why did Moses say this then? And Jesus says, from the beginning it was not so, but Moses allowed it because of the hardness of heart. Now stop and think about it. What does hardness of heart mean? Well, if you do a word study of that phrase, you'll see that hardness of heart is an expression in the Bible for the fallen nature and depravity of man. Because of the fallen nature of man, further enactments which were not so from the beginning, from the original creation state, have come to play. Have come into play. Okay, Jesus has said, in answer to their question about divorce, you know that Moses said from the very beginning, one man, one woman, okay? And uh, what God has joined together is not to be uh, broken. And they say, why did Moses allow divorce then? Jesus says, from the beginning it was not so. But Moses, for the hardness of heart, laid down rules for divorce. You see, from the beginning, in the unfallen state, it was not na- uh, necessary to give divorce legislation. But because of the hardness of man's heart, because of his fallen to sin, further laws have become necessary to deal with rectifying sinful relations in marriage. He could say the same thing about clothing, couldn't he? What if somebody came and asked Jesus, do we really have to wear clothes today? (laughs) Jesus could say, well, from the beginning it was not so, but because of the hardness of heart, Moses said this, that, and the other. Or how about provisions for warfare? Jesus could say, from the beginning it was not so, but because of the hardness of man's heart, God has to give standards about warfare. How about provisions about burying the dead? From the beginning it was not so, but new circumstances, namely the hardness of men's heart. The fall into sin calls for new provisions to deal with that situation. And that is all that Jesus is saying about divorce. From the beginning, he has just quoted the creation ordinance. And they say, well, what about Moses? You know, Moses is not contradicting it. After all, Moses wrote the creation ordinance, right? Moses is not contradicting that. Moses is just giving what the, what the stipulation is when hardness of heart enters into the picture. God's ideal is one man, one wife, forever. Moses says you can put away your wife, win because of the hardness of heart, uncleanness enters the picture, fornication enters the picture. And the most telling point here in Murray's argument is that he says that Jesus is contending that Moses tolerated divorce in the Old Testament, but that is not what the Greek word means. The Greek word that Jesus used does not mean toleration, as though it's disapprobated, There are overtones of God's displeasure, but he lets them do it anyway. The word is a very simple Greek word that means permission. Moses gave permission, Moses gave instruction, that's all it means. For the hardness of their hearts, Moses gave instruction as to what to do, when in fact a wife or a husband are engaged in fornication. From the beginning it was not so. Now, there, see, there are, I'm talking about linguistic and exegetical and logical problems in Murray's case. By the way, any time you pile up linguistic and exegetical and logical problems, you've really, got a, you've really got some problems to overcome. I mean, each one of those is sufficient. I could have given you just one of those, and I could have left it at that, but I mean, I'm going to add something else. There's a great theological problem, and Murray knows better than this elsewhere. I grant you, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants to criticize Murray, but it's only because of what Murray has taught me elsewhere that I have the audacity to suggest that he forgot it here. God is of such a holy nature that he does not tolerate sin. If it was sinful in the Old Testament for a man to put away his wife for an unclean thing, that is, forgetting that it really means the same thing as fornication, if it were sinful, God could not tolerate it. And I give passages in in theonomy, which are not in my notes right here, but you'll recall that God is of too holy and pure a nature to even look upon sin, much less to write in his law that which condones it. So now, not only are there linguistic, exegetical, and logical problems, there's an overwhelming theological problem. That's contrary to the very character of God, that he would do that. Then somebody says, Well, hasn't there been a change in the penal sanctions against adultery? I mean, Jesus said that if if a woman's caught in adultery, she can be divorced. Let me put up the red flag. That isn't what Jesus said, is it? What is wrong with the contention that Jesus says when a woman is guilty of adultery, then she can be divorced? That's what Jesus said, is it? What did he say? You're never going to learn to argue accurately unless we get the terms of the argument right. Jesus said, but for the cause of fornication, a man cannot put away his wife. He goes on to say, and a man who does put away his wife for any other reason causes her to commit adultery. In the very verse under discussion, Jesus uses a different word than the word for adultery. There was a specific word for adultery right there at hand, and Jesus does not say adultery is the only ground for divorce. He says fornication is the ground for divorce. Now, adultery is a form of fornication, though, All right, so we have to come back to this. If in the Old Testament an adulteress was to be put to death, and Jesus says that an adulteress, that is in, in the case that fornication takes the form of adultery, if Jesus says that fornication leads to divorce, then hasn't he taken away the Old Testament penalty for the adulteress? I want to make three quick points. First of all, not all adulteresses or adulterers were executed in the Old Testament. What I was saying to David a few minutes ago. Not all adulterers or adulteresses were put to death in the Old Testament. I'll give you a couple examples. When there was no due process, that's when there weren't two witnesses, then the woman or the man wouldn't be put to death. Another instance, remember that a man who suspects immorality in his wife can take her before the priest in the temple? There's no due process there, but the priest can, because of a divine revelatory act of God, determine whether she's been guilty. But it doesn't say that she's to be taken out and executed. And that's because the courts can't adjudicate a case like that where we're appealing to divine revelation to give the outcome. And so we know that there were cases in the Old Testament where adulterers and adulteresses were not put to death. Moreover, the topic of Jesus' discussion is the ground for divorce, not the penalty for adultery. I don't know how this escapes people. There's a very standard of uh, fallacy in logic called the fallacy of four terms. Jesus is discoursing on the grounds of divorce. Those who go to Jesus' words conclude something about the penalty for adultery. That is, the conclusion draws out points which are not in the premises Jesus is not talking about the penalty for adultery he's talking about the ground for divorce and what he says is that the only ground for divorce is fornication now if the only ground for divorce is fornication does that mean that divorce is the only penalty for fornication no maybe syphilis is a penalty that will come too Jesus wasn't denying that there are going to be other things that happen to fornicators but he was saying that's the only ground for divorce just like I said a minute ago the the fact that the only ground for me being taken to traffic court is that I have an accident doesn't mean the only penalty for my accident is going to court the fact that the only ground for entering the baseball hall of fame is hitting 100 home runs doesn't mean the only reward for hitting 100 home runs is that you're going to be in the hall of fame you might also get a fatter contract next year See what I'm getting at? It's just just an elementary logical mistake to try to draw this out from that. And then my third point is that we know in the Old Testament that the high priest, well, any priest, was not to marry a harlot. The Bible forbade a priest to marry a harlot. Uh, but the Bible also says the penalty for harlotry is death. How is it that if harlots were to die, there could also be a law about not marrying them? Yeah, that's right. Because not all harlots did die. Not all harlots could be proven to be harlots, and uh, there's any number of cases like that. The fact that the Old Testament could have two different enactments that would seem, if every harlot died, we wouldn't need the other one, only goes to show that the New Testament can certainly have the same situation. An adulterer can die, and Jesus can say, nevertheless, adultery is a ground for divorce. The principle is this. You have the kingdom of God come to expression in the church. The kingdom of God comes to expression in the family. The kingdom of God comes to expression in one society. Now, let us say that you live in a society where adultery is not a crime. What do you do? Does that mean since the, since the magistrate will not execute the adulteress that the adulteress gets off scot-free? Jesus says, no. If you can't eliminate evil out of your society through execution here, you can't eliminate it out of the family. Put the woman away. Divorce. Put her out of the church. Excommunication. So you see, Paul can say the incestuous fornicator is to be put out of the church. Jesus can say that an adulteress is to be put out of the family. But that doesn't mean that the society should also have something to do. It just goes to show that when the society won't do it, the family and the church are not left with an incestuous fornicator or an adulteress on their hands. Yes, Jim. Are you saying then that in the Old
2: Testament the Israeli society should not have permitted the harlots? Did exist?
0: No, I'm saying there are some cases where the harlots had to be permitted.
2: Yeah, like Hosea's
0: wife. Uh, well. We'd have to do a detailed study of it, which I don't have in front of me, but I'm thinking just off the cuff of a harlot who uh, doesn't have two witnesses against her. Okay? So let's say she doesn't have two witnesses, but the priest knows she's a harlot. Or she says, you know, they go out on a date, she goes, you know, I'm a harlot. All right? The priest has now a law in the Old Testament that says don't marry her. Okay? Now, this... Seems you know crass and, and simple, but the whole point is if, if one can, with a very simple mind, think of illustrations of why both those laws could be used, it certainly wouldn't take much for a sophisticated and subtle mind to do even more. And I'm saying, look, we can all simply say there's room for two laws, even though if all the harlots were put to death, no priest would have to worry about marrying him anyway. So, over and over and over again, what have we found? That there is something wrong with Murray's argument linguistically. Something wrong with his argument theologically, exegetically, logically. It is not true that Jesus said that Moses tolerated sin in the Old Testament. Jesus said that since we don't have the the original creation condition, from the beginning it wasn't necessary for Moses to give divorce legislation, but because of the hardness of men's hearts he did. And what Jesus said is the case. Don't put away your life except for the cause of fornication. It turns out is precisely what Moses said. Don't put away your wife except for the cause of a hard, um, an unclean thing. Paul.
2: How does that fit into Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy 7 about believers uh, and unbelievers and letting
1: them leave and the possibility of desertion?
0: Well, you see, that is the point that seems to me is full confirmation of what I've been telling you. Because the argument is usually that the only ground for divorce, according to Jesus, is adultery. Now, again, that's linguistically just not true. Jesus uses the word adultery in that verse, but not for the ground for divorce. He uses fornication. Now, if Jesus said adultery is the only ground for a divorce, and Paul says that irreconcilable um, a desertion is also a ground for divorce, then Paul has contradicted Jesus. But I don't think Paul contradicts Jesus, because I think irreconcilable desertion is a form of fornication. It's a form of abominable and unclean living. So you see how that confirms what I'm telling you? One has got to grant that fornication is the grant for divorce and not strictly adultery. Because a person can depart from the home without becoming an adulterer. How, maybe statistically the vast majority do become adulterers or adulteresses. fact is you can leave the home and, and, and refuse to be a husband or a wife and still not engage in sexual uncleanness. What is
1: your recommendation?
0: Well, I mean, I'm only, I'm only putting that in there because if you have a spat and somebody stomps out and slams the door, that doesn't constitute desertion. It's when the person leaves and says, I'm not coming back, I've had it. Irreconcilable desertion. You, you can, forget irreconcilable. I just threw that in there just to make sure you didn't think that I felt a spat was enough. How do you determine
1: that by
0: the God's name? Well, it's not too hard. And If you go to the unbelieving husband and say, now look, you have an obligation to this woman. He says, well, it's tough, I'm not coming back. I should say that's desertion. Now, I think you also should work at it. Say that the pastor evangelizes the guy and he says, I've really been sinful. I repent of my sin and I want to be brought back. My conviction is that the wife owes it to him to receive him back in the Lord. So it's not irreconcilable. But I'm not saying that the woman has to wait and wait and wait forever to see, well, maybe it will be reconciled. Maybe five years from now he'll come to his senses. Uh but we're getting off on something else Paul I wish I hadn't said irreconcilable my point is that Paul says d- d- desertion of some form is a ground for divorce okay and therefore that counts as fornication um, Paul did you have a question uh, I was just going to ask
1: you, uh, the, the Bible you know, it probably does I just do know where it finds uh, fornication in the
0: No, the only way you can find that out is by looking at every context in which the word appears as it's applied. There's no verse that I know of that says this is what this word means. You just have to see how the word is actually used. And by the way, I have a long discussion of that in theonomy and so you can't pursue it. It's just I don't have it in my notes in front of me. Brad? The reason that Edward committed divorce in his day...
2: Was if there was any difference between church family and society, which is opposed to Paul's situation,
0: which demands that uh, uh, the unbelievers and believers continue on marriage. Now,
2: say that again. Well, Ezra uh, had the people to uh, divorce their foreign
0: wives. Oh, okay, okay. Paul
2: says uh, if the unbelievers willing to remain, uh, in the marriage and the continue in the marriage. Was the difference there because the, the society of Ezra's day was supposedly um, a godly society, a mm-hmm. Christian society,
0: if you will, mm-hmm. and uh, the society of the Christians was not. Did you say something with any answer that? no, I'm
2: no, just saying that it was an element, rather,
1: in the rulership. Does
2: that
0: make any No, it would. Um, it would make a difference. Um, I don't have an answer readily available to that question. I'll have to think about it this week. What Mer- what Mickey's suggesting is that, that Ezra is calling for an annulment of marriages that never were correct to begin with, rather than uh, a divorce. But um, I just don't know. I will look into it for you, though. Great. I was going to
2: say, it would seem also I, I've heard that... You could pretty well assume that the foreign wives was not simply because they were foreign, because after all Ruth was a Moabite, and uh, and so you couldn't you know turn back and say but, I mean they could turn back and say well what about my wife she's just like a Ruth but because these foreign wives must have been pleading to their foreign gods and therefore committing an abomination.
0: I think that is well. Yeah, I think that's a fairly good explanation. Uh, that's something that certainly is taken into account. There's something. Uh, it's not simply the foreignness of the wives, but their idolatry that uh, may have accounted for that. But I'll have to study it. Just, um i hadn't thought of that before. Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Okay, my point is that Jesus has... We do not need to concede that Jesus teaches discontinuity between Old and New Testament. Because if you concede that, what you have conceded is that Jesus believes in moral evolution. Jesus teaches in evolution ethical standards. By the way, although Murray doesn't do this, at least not very overtly, it's of interest to me that most people who use this kind of argument that because the Old Testament was so lax, the New Testament needs stronger standards, they use that to conclude that we can do away with some of the hard standards of the Old Testament. (laughs) Isn't that inconsistent? The argument is, we know that there's a difference between Old and New Testament because in the Old Testament you could put away your wife or anything, in the New Testament you can't. Consequently, since there's a difference in standards, we don't have to keep those hard Old Testament standards. But you see, even if you grant Murray's argument, what does that prove? It proves the New Testament has tougher and more rigorous standards than the Old Testament. One must keep at least the level of morality of the Old Testament and more, not less. You can't generalize laxity with respect to the Old Testament from a strengthening of the Old Testament. Now, as it turns out, I don't think Jesus does strengthen the Old Testament. I think he confirms the Old Testament even there. But you must see that even if you don't follow my argument and don't believe it, it will not give you any leeway to go back on the Old Testament standards. What it will give you is that you must follow the Old Testament standards and go even further than they did.
3: What Murray was saying, he said, was that the standards are the same between the two. The difference was. But there's less toleration in the New Testament. Now, if that's true, then you can't argue that there's more toleration.
0: Yeah, you're saying very clearly or in another way what I have just said you can't argue from the removal of toleration that we have more toleration you can't maximize toleration on a strengthening of the standard ok but now I think the major point is we've given a lot of arguments and the major point is that just isn't what Jesus says and I hope you'll read theonomy on that point let's talk about polygamy before I talk about polygamy what was Murray's what was Murray's uh, approach he said if Jesus does this with respect to divorce, then we can do this with respect to polygamy. That is, if we can interpret this discontinuity between Old and New Testaments on divorce, because Jesus did it, we uh, if Jesus did it there, then we can do it with respect to polygamy. Now I want to ask a question. Can we do it beyond polygamy? How far can we how far can we go in doing that? You see why I'm what I was getting at when I said this a very dangerous theological principle here not only the dangerous principle that God in fact will tolerate sin but the dangerous principle that once we start doing that we don't have to stop doing it do we so I'm not sure that's what we want to do well what do we want to say about polygamy then well polygamy was forbidden from the beginning Jesus tells us that that's what Genesis 2 verses 23 and 24 mean. The creation ordinance, according to Christ's interpretation, and I trust nobody wants to question Christ's interpretation of the Old Testament, from the very beginning, polygamy was forbidden. All right? My second point is that you'll see that polygamy was always introduced and mentioned in the Old Testament in context of disapprobation. That is, you always find polygamy introduced where God shows his disfavor for it. In Genesis 4, verse 23... Polygamy is introduced outside the covenant line by the wicked Cainite civilization. When Abraham in Genesis 16 and Jacob in Genesis 29 both contracted multiple marriages, they did so in less than honorable ways, with less than honorable motives, and in less than honorable situations. Moreover, the Bible clearly teaches in the Old Testament that polygamy was abusive in its effects. Look at Genesis 16, verses 4 to 6, Genesis 21, verses 10 and 11, Genesis 29, verses 30 and 31. My first point, polygamy was forbidden from the very beginning. My second point, polygamy was introduced and mentioned in context of disapprobation, in context of disfavor. Thirdly, I think it is very likely, although I can't be absolute on this point because uh, there are grounds for going a little bit different way, but I think very likely polygamy was forbidden in the Mosaic Law itself at Leviticus 18.18. Interestingly, the person who put me onto this interpretation of Leviticus 18.18 was John Murray in his appendix to principles of conduct on this verse. Leviticus 18.18 18 says, and, when you, and you shall not take a wife to a wife to be a rival to her to uncover her nakedness because the other in her lifetime. I grant you, some of your translations say you shall not take a wife to her sister. But uh, Murray demonstrates, I think, fairly clearly in the Hebrew that what that's saying is you should not add a gune to a gune. What is a gune in Hebrew?
1: Woman.
0: A woman. You should not add a woman to a woman. That is, and also that function for a wife. As well. You should not add a wife to a wife. If you're not to multiply wives, you're not to add a wife to a wife, and then you have a prohibition of polygamy even in the Mosaic law. All right. first point, polygamy was forbidden from the very beginning at the creation account. Secondly, when it is introduced into the Bible, it's always introduced with disfavor Thirdly, it is very likely forbidden right there in the Mosaic Law at Leviticus 18. But even if it's not forbidden there, it is clearly regulated in Exodus 21, verses 9 and 10, in Deuteronomy 21, 15 to 17. Notice I say it was regulated. Now, if polygamy had to be regulated, what does that tell you? That it was not favored by God. That it had to have something done to it to avoid even further ill effects coming. My fourth point true, there was no penal redress for it in the Old Testament. It's true, in the Old Testament you will find no penalty given for polygamy. Does that mean that polygamy was not forbidden in the Old Testament? I want you to be consistent in your reasoning. If you say, since there was no penal redress against polygamy, it wasn't forbidden, what was the penal redress for covetousness in the Old Testament? There isn't any. Consequently, covetousness was not forbidden in the Old Testament. Right? That's what you call a reductio ad absurdum. Using the form of the argument of your opponent and showing that if you apply it to any other case, it just doesn't work right. But I'm going to add something to that reductio. Somebody says, look, there was no penal redress in the Old Testament against polygamy. Therefore, it was all right. Well, it doesn't follow at all any more than it follows with respect to covetousness. But what I want to point out is that there's no penal redress for polygamy in the New Testament either. Where does the New Testament give a penalty for polygamy? In fact, you'll notice that Paul says that an elder is to be the husband of one wife. Quite clearly, when the church went into new cultures and polygamists entered into the congregation, they were allowed to be members of the congregation as polygamists. However, they were not allowed to be elders. They couldn't be leaders in the congregation. But there clearly were polygamists in the church and Paul said these cannot qualify to be an elder. Yes?
2: I think it's significant to note that in some of the missionary efforts overseas the enforcing of of a monogamous marriage upon members of
0: the church has really brought destruction and the Sure. Sure. Because the reason for that is that polygamy while it is not God's ideal and while it's disapprobated and contrary to his standards is still a form of covenantal marriage certainly beats the free love of our society, doesn't it? Because in, in polygamy, at least, there are commitments to one another and you have a family unit. It's not the family unit as it ought to be, monogamously. But there is a family unit with an authority, structure, and fidelity to one another. But when you enter into a polygamous culture and people are converted, they ought to go and to try to unscramble the eggs. Yes?
3: But wouldn't that constitute
0: toleration of on our part? No. just means that we don't punish it.
3: Talking about in a church context. yeah. You know,
0: the church never If a man is converted, having been a polygamist. Now we would punish it if he became a polygamist after conversion. And they say maybe that's what I need to bring out here. We're not saying that if a man who is in the church decides to take another wife after he already has one, that he can do that without the elders coming down on him and right hard. They can excommunicate him if the, if he, you know, proceeds to go through with that sin and not repent of it. But we're talking about coming into a situation where a polygamist is converted. And I don't believe, in fact, I think I can show that God does not allow us to go back and say, well, you see, that never was God's ideal. That's contrary to His standards. And therefore, you must break one of the marriages. can't do that. Although it must be repented of. You see, I think what you're confusing is the fact that we must repent before God. Uh, well, what you're, what you're forgetting is the fact that I can't punish you for doing something doesn't mean that you need not repent before God for doing it. That's just what the New Testament does although it must be repented of. You see, I think what you're confusing is the fact that we must repent before God. Uh, well, what you're, what you're forgetting is the fact that I can't punish you for doing something doesn't mean that you need not repent before God for doing it. That's just that the New Testament doesn't give us a penalty for polygamists. Well, if, you're, if
3: we're saying that, that polygamy is sin, and okay, that sin of which there's no penal sanction. But the church doesn't exercise that kind of uh, discipline anyway. Discipline of state, yeah. but it does exercise discipline over its members by, uh, yeah, sure. you know, the way it does. And so, but it seems to me you're still saying that we're tolerating this sin in the congregation. No, we're
0: not, because it's a sin that, having once been performed, can't be undone. It's
3: like a woman getting pregnant; she can't undo that.
0: Now. Yeah, that's right. I, that 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 in fact is a very good parallel. I think what you see what Greg is suggesting is let's say that some young girl in your church does in fact have sexual relations before marriage and gets pregnant. Is the answer abortion? So you're
3: saying no. it would really be a compounding of the sin. To Precisely. The
0: to to bring about a divorce it's not called for here. But it is a sin nonetheless. The girl should repent and have the child and bring it up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The man should repent of having done that in his former life, but he can't get rid of his wife just because he did it. But now my point is, if the person says, "Look, in the Old Testament there was no penalty," my point is, in the New Testament there's no penalty. So you haven't proven that there's discontinuity. Isn't that the
1: repentance is really turning away
0: from us? In every case that you can, you can't turn away from a baby that's you know living inside you, and you can't turn away from a wife that you've given a covenantal oath to be faithful to. Well,
1: how about in preaching, do you do you still continue
0: to preach against polygamy? Sure. And what you might say is that this man has generally repented and, and you know Sam Smith down here would be the first person to say amen to this condemnation of polygamy. He grants that it's sinful and you have to explain to your people. Nevertheless, it's further sin for him to put away a wife without just cause. Now, of course, if one of his wives is a fornicator, then that's another situation. But given the fact that she's been faithful, is it right for him to then just put away his wife and compound his sin? No, it's not. And the point is... Paul had polygamists in the church because he spoke of them. He said they can't be elders. Well, if they were to be excommunicated, Paul wouldn't have had to say it at all, would he? Because they wouldn't be in the church to be elders to begin with. So
1: I think
2: the, uh, the parallel of pregnancy and abortion is rather interesting in light of the fact that most societies and face the problem of polygamy among new converts. The, uh, the putting away of one of the plural wives, in that case, is either tantamount to causing her death because she is no longer able to provide for her own existence or forcing her into a, into uh, prostitution.
0: Yeah, and that's what Jesus and, says forces her to commit adultery.
2: And
0: uh, that, would be, that could be the, the abortion
2: side of trying to pregnancy. That's right. And you just can't you really do that. Compound the problem and much sin in that case. Okay,
0: now look, here's what I've argued. Polygamy was forbidden from the beginning. We know that. Jesus said so. Secondly, it was always introduced in context of disfavor. It was forbidden in the Mosaic law. At least it was regulated in the Mosaic law as though it were an abuse. And fourthly, the fact that there was no penal redress in the Old Testament doesn't change anything because there's no penal redress in the New Testament. Now, fifthly, what are the um, what are the reasons that Murray has argued for the supposedly lax attitude toward it in the Old Testament? I think they're all very questionable. He says, first of all, there was no open censure of it. Well, can anybody find an open censure, censure, of? Uh, uh, the incest of Lot's daughters with Lot. Any place in the Old Testament that condemns the fact that Lot had sexual relations with his daughters? Oh, must be all right then, huh? God was condoning it. Does anybody reason that way seriously? You can't. How about Abraham's lie to Pharaoh? Does the Bible anywhere indicate that God uh, was um, angry with the lie of Abraham? Well, I think he was, but I just don't think that the Bible specifically pulls that out and mentions it. How about the scheming of Rebekah for Jacob to steal Esau's blessing? Anything in the Bible that condemns that? I mean, by name. There is something in the Bible that condemns it, I think. that's just that it doesn't mention in that situation. How about Laban's deception? Well, we go on and on and on. The fact is there are a lot of things in the Old Testament that we know to be wrong that the Bible doesn't have to openly mention as being wrong. And so the fact that the Bible doesn't have any open censure of polygamy doesn't mean that it's not wrong. Somebody says there was no penal uh, discipline against it. We've already talked about that. There's no penal discipline for covetousness. Murray thirdly argues there was no prohibition. Well, there certainly was a prohibition. Jesus quoted it, didn't he? The creation ordinance. You see, we're forgetting an awful lot. I mean, we have blinders on when we argue this way as though there's no prohibition in the book of Exodus. And therefore, there's no prohibition. Well, there is a prohibition. Somebody says, it was a civil right. Well, it wasn't a civil right. It was regulated so that further abuses and further wrongs didn't come from it. Somebody says, look, outstanding saints of the Old Testament were polygamous. And I answer, yes. And every time the Bible mentions it, it shows God's disfavor because of the poor motives and the abusive results. Now, all I'm trying to point out here very quickly is that the reasons people have offered for the supposedly lax attitude of the Old Testament are just very questionable reasons. So we've had no reason to believe the Old Testament had a lax attitude toward polygamy. We have no reason to believe the New Testament goes beyond the Old Testament as though it adds a penal redress not found in the Old Testament. We have every reason to believe polygamy was forbidden in the Mosaic Law. At least it was forbidden from the very beginning and it was always introduced in context of disapprobation. So now my conclusion is that polygamy was condemned from the outset without temporal redress and the same is true in the New Testament. Let me say that again. Polygamy was condemned from the outset without temporal redress and the same is true in the New Testament. What I'm saying is the penalty for polygamy has always been an eternal penalty. There has not been a temporal penalty. And nevertheless, it was condemned from the outset. Polygamy has been wrong from the very creation of man and woman. God did not give a punishment for it in, in history, and that's true in the New Testament as well. At least I don't find anything in the New Testament to tell us what the penalty for polygamy is. <coughs> Greg? Um, you
1: mentioned Abraham's line, and that, uh, that God actually disfavored that.
0: Well, if he did. I think he did.
1: Would
3: that
0: be on the same par as uh, Rahab's lie? No. We're talking about something else. See, I shouldn't have mentioned that illustration if you think that Abraham's lie was condoned. But you certainly don't think that Lot's incest was condoned. You see, I was, just, I was giving four or five examples of things that we would say were wrong. Well, maybe one of my illustrations backfired because you don't think it was wrong. I do think it was wrong, but I think we'd, we'd better talk about that under the Ninth Commandment. I don't think that Rahab's lie was wrong. But that's a different illustration, and there's a reason why the one was and the one and the other wasn't. Unless we're just going to get too far into another subject if I go any further than that. Well, let's talk about the unity of biblical ethics then. Having my point thus far, if I can step back and give the overall conclusion is, if we can if we can see that there is not a discontinuity in the two hardest cases that are thrown up to us then obviously we don't have much of a problem at all that is we have seen that there is continuity on polygamy continuity on divorce and if, and if those are the toughest illustrations and they are I believe then we can go on how do we know that there is a unity between Old and New Testament on, on uh, the standard of ethics I'm going to give you uh, four reasons first Christ himself said that every jot and tittle of the law is confirmed in the New Testament Matthew 5, 17-19. My second argument is the unity of the covenant between Old and New Testament. In Ephesians 1, verse 12, Paul speaks of the covenants, plural, of the promise. And there I take it that Paul is speaking of the one promise that God works out through any number of covenantal administrations of the Old Testament. Many covenants, but they're all on the root of one same singular unifying promise, the covenants of the promise. And so if we do have a covenant of grace here then, that is, God progressively revealing his covenantal administrations but on the root of the one promise, and if, now I'm adding another premise, if the stipulations of God are part of the concept of the covenant, which any number of non-theonomists will argue, I mean Meredith Klein makes that point, to break God's stipulations is to break God's covenant. If the stipulations define the covenant And if we have one covenant from all the New Testaments, then we have one standard set of stipulations. So we can argue from Christ's own words, Matthew 5. We can argue from covenantal unity that we must have the same law as the Old Testament because we have the same covenant with the Old Testament. By the way, I'm going to strengthen that just a step further. Somebody says, oh no, but we live under the New Covenant. What does Jeremiah say defines the new covenant? That the law is written on the heart. Does he say a new law is written on the heart? Does he say that no law is written on the heart? The law is taken away? No, he just says the law, the well-known law, the law which the Hebrews knew to be written on tables of stone will now be written on the fleshly tablets of the heart. The law, the law which they all knew. And so there is a unity between all of God's covenants and if that's true, then that means there must be one moral standard, one set of stipulations for all of God's covenants. Okay, thirdly, the New Testament usage of the law of God proves the unity of God's law. Because you'll find any number of passages teaching or applying that standard without apologies. You want to know what legal evidence is? New Testament writers say at the mouth of two or three three witnesses all things shall be established. That's quoting the Old Testament law. Old Testament case law, by the way, not the Decalogue. And yet that's found in three or four places in the New Testament. That the law of legal evidence is the same law as the Old Testament. Paul says that he deserves to have his pay. How does he prove it? He quotes the Old Testament, "You you, you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads. James argues that rich uh, employers are not to oppress their laborers. How does he prove it? By quoting the Old Testament case law. Jesus, when he wants to summarize the entire duty of man, does not refer to the Decalogue. Ever thought of the significance of that? That Jesus summarizes the Old Testament demand in terms of two case laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. So Jesus quotes outside the Decalogue to summarize the whole Old Testament standard. So over and over and over again, the idea that there is not a unity between Old and New Testaments meets embarrassment before the text of the New Testament itself. If you just do an inductive study of New Testament usage, you'll see that the New Testament writers had no trouble citing Old Testament case laws. No trouble at all. In fact, so binding is the Old Testament law that they can even put it to creative uses. Now, my point is, if Paul can put the Old Testament law to a fairly creative use, he is assuming that its ordinary and mundane use is valid, or else his creative use of it would not make much sense. Do you follow me? Well, what's a creative use of the law? Remember in, when Paul writes Second Corinthians, at one point he says... I have written to you once and I'm coming to you again even as the Old Testament says at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Well, if you stop and think about that, you'd say, no, wait a minute. That's not two or three witnesses. That's just Paul witnessing twice. But Paul is willing to cite that because there's a principle involved. He says, I've borne witness against you once. I think he means before the eyes of God. I've borne witness against you that you have not repented yet. Again, before the eyes of God. And that establishes it, that you're guilty. And maybe I'm not right in taking it that way, but the point is Paul uses his two epistles and says that these two epistles constitute the Old Testament two witnesses. I think that's a rather creative use of the law. But how could Paul use it creatively if he didn't believe that it was true in a mundane sense? Well, over and over and over again, the the New Testament uses this, but you will never find a New Testament writer saying, Now, I know that in general the Old Testament law is not binding, but I'm going to use this one. Or, there's a special reason why I can quote this one. Or, uh, forgive the lapse, but we're going to use this one. (laughs) I mean, you don't get any rationalizations, any excuses, or any explanations for that fact that over and over and over again, the Old Testament is cited, case law, decalogue, penal sanction, what have you. Now, how do you account for the fact the New Testament uses these laws if they're not binding? Do you really think that we have more wisdom than Paul to say to Paul, well, now look, your argument's invalid, Paul. We don't have to keep those laws. The New Testament, at least, in, what is it, four places, tells us the quantity of the Old Testament that's binding. Jesus said, man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. James says, if a man keeps the whole law and violates one point, is guilty of violating the whole. Just imagine somebody who says, you know, this is, this is the almost... He says, I believe we've got to keep the whole law from the Old Testament, and there's only this one little law that I don't think we have to keep. Now, I'm not talking about a change of shadow to substance ceremonial law, but that for some reason, we don't have to keep this law. And James says if a man keeps the whole law and violates one point, he has ripped apart the whole. Jesus says every word from God's mouth. James was every point of the law. Paul said every scripture of the Old Testament, every inspired scripture is profitable for instruction in righteousness. How much of the Old Testament moral instruction must we keep? Every graphe, every writing. Okay? Paul says every graphe, every sentence or every writing, James says every point of the law. Jesus says every word that proceeds from God's mouth. Now at this point, we have friends who are going to say legalist. What do you mean every one of that? Well, Jesus makes it even worse. Because it's not just one graphe or one point or one word. He says one jot or tittle. Not even one letter. We can't deviate from even one letter. So New Testament usage as well as New Testament teaching show us the unity of Old and New Testament standards and morality. Okay? And then finally, I want to put down here the principles of faith, grace, love, fruit of the Spirit, golden rule, etc. Now, is there anybody who thinks that we don't have to live by faith today or that we can violate the principles of grace or love or the fruit of the Spirit or the golden rule? I'm assuming nobody. Okay? Paul says, Do we then make void the law of God by faith? God forbid. We rather establish the law. So faith confirms the law. It establishes it. Any Christian who believes that faith is a standard of living today must believe that it establishes the law. Do we have to live by grace? Yes. Titus 2 says, The grace of God has appeared unto all men, teaching them that we should not live in an ungodly way in the world because Christ has shed his blood to redeem his people from every lawless deed. The grace of God has appeared so that we wouldn't have lawless deeds anymore. How about love? Paul said that love works no ill to its neighbor because love is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, if you believe you have to follow after love, you must believe you have to follow after law because that's what love fulfills. And this is love, says John, that we keep his commandments. How about the fruit of the Spirit? Are we to keep the fruit of the Spirit today? Yes. That's right. Paul says the reason the fruit of the Spirit is approbated by God is because against such things there is no law. It's just because we know that that conforms to the law of God that we keep it. How about the golden rule? And Jesus says that this is the law and the prophets that you do unto others as you would have them do unto you well why is the golden rule binding because it summarizes the moral standard of the Old Testament now I realize that there's an awful lot of flack about these theonomic things around today but I want to suggest to you that upon examination there oughtn't to be I won't tell you what I think the reason is for that but I do suggest that whatever the reason is, there is overwhelming reason to believe that the law of God is binding today. Every word, every point, every graphe, every letter. Jim. I
2: hate to pile up another snake. That's all right. Okay. But uh, perhaps you can shed some light on that either tonight or if you don't feel you've got time, then perhaps next week. It would seem to me, taking what you have just said, that a person could build a very good case then for saying, okay. I buy your thesis, buy everything. Therefore, muzzle not the ox that treads out the corn or the grain or whatever else. All right, I can understand the principle, but we're going to live by every word. I'd best go out and buy an ox and some corn and a the treadmill.
0: Then his problem is not that he disagrees with the theonomic principle, but he hasn't exegeted the Bible correctly. Okay, now
2: comes my question. What is the hermeneutic principle, and where do we get it from, that says that we can take the principles, let say, a script of their cultural setting to understand the case laws and application to the cultural situation today and not be guilty of, of violating some of the words Joss Tittles and points of
0: the law. 1 Corinthians 9. I'm going to give you an answer to your question. 1 Corinthians 9. In fact, I'm going to show you how... I didn't intend to go into this argument, but since we've gotten into it, I'll, I'll, I'll finish it. In 1 Corinthians 9... Paul says um, at verse 6 well verse 4 introduces the problem have we no right to eat and to drink have we no right to lead about a wife that is a believer even as the rest of the apostles and the brethren of the Lord and Cephas or I only in Barnabas have we not a right to forbear working don't we have a right to forbear working and still eat what soldier ever serves at his own charges who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat the fruit thereof or who feeds a flock and doesn't and does not um, eat of the milk of the flock. Do I speak these things after the manner of men? He's given common sense arguments up to this point. He goes, do you know any soldier who has to provide his own food? Doesn't a man who plants a vineyard live by the vineyard? I mean, even men will say this, common sense arguments. But he says, do I speak after the manner of men? Or doesn't the law say the same thing? And then he quotes, for it stands written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when he treads out the corn. Okay, now Jim comes along and says, now Paul, how do you know that it mean you're supposed to go out and buy an ox? How, how come you're trying to apply that to yourself? Under inspiration, Paul says, is it for the oxen that God careth? Uh, the, the thrust there, I take it, is "Is it for the oxen only that God cares? Do you really think he's only talking about oxen here? Verse 10, or doesn't he say assuredly for our sake? Yes, it's for our sake that it is written because he that ploweth Ought, not to, uh, ought to plow in hope, and he that threshes to thresh in hope of partaking. If we, sowed unto your, uh, if we sowed unto you spiritual things, is it such a great matter if we shall reap from you carnal things or fleshly things? Paul makes immediately clear there that while Moses spoke of oxen, we can take the principle and apply it to New Testament ministers. That, that I understand, but
2: you'll have to forgive me. It would seem to me that one could still say, yes, but in that situation... Paul was living. In, Paul was still using oxen to grind out the grain. They were still fulfilling the law and not muzzling that ox that was grinding the grain. Yes, the principle and application behind it to other circumstances is true. But one also, in addition to applying the principles to other areas, as Paul does.
0: Jim, milk are milk. are you? Oh, wait a minute. Are you assuming that I don't think? That's what it's doing? Like. Do you think that I believe farmers have the right to muzzle their oxen today? No. Well,
2: I, well okay. What I'm getting. You see, it, if I have an
0: oxen, I'm not to muzzle him.
2: But, my, but the, the point that I'm making is somebody
0: could very well want to say, but now keep, we're going to keep that
2: that we have to go out and buy an ox in addition to paying your patent. Well the law,
0: the law nowhere says you're under obligation to go buy an ox ok look the law says look the law says that an adulteress is to be put to death does that mean we're supposed to go out and find some adulteress
1: <laughs> no what
0: it means is when the situation arises you do this alright so if you're guilty of adultery that's the penalty if you're a farmer and you have an ox that's what you're supposed to do with the ox but it doesn't say go out and buy an ox okay. as long as you buy that paul himself shows us the principle of case law interpretation here but i'm going to push it further okay
1: <laughs>
0: all, right. all of us all of us are ready to accept i hope by this time we're all ready to accept the principles of the case law as binding how does paul continue if others partake of this right over you do not we yet more nevertheless we did not make use of this right but we bear all things that we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that they who minister about sacred things eat of the things of the temple, and they that wait upon the altar have their portion with the altar? Even so did the Lord ordain that they that proclaim the gospel should live of the gospel. Paul quotes a ceremonial law and says the principle of that ceremonial law has a moral point to it. He's quoting the law that says that the priests can eat of certain sacrifices at the altar. That, That That is the way that they, you know, they don't go out and earn their living ordinarily. They are to be given these sacrifices and they are to eat of those sacrifices. They make their living of the altar. And he says, even so, on that basis did Jesus teach us that those who are ministers of the gospel should live by the gospel. That is, they should be able to make their living from their work in the gospel. Now, we're all ready to accept the muzzling the ox principle. But Paul even does it with the ceremonial law and uh, it's only a few weeks ago that I myself it dawned on me because I always go that far in the argument and that's usually my point but the point is a much stronger one Paul's even willing to use the ceremonial law to make his moral points and so I believe that we have to hold that the two toughest illustrations do not disprove continuity between Old and New Testament moreover there's any number of reasons to hold to the unity between Old and New Testaments from these points that I've been making here now then. So would
1: you
2: be moving on to incest in your discussion? That seems to be a sticky
0: one. <laughs> I was going to talk about incest under the seventh commandment when we got to it, but which, what's the problem?
2: Well, because, because it apparently is not tolerated under the Mosaic covenant.
0: What yet? makes you think it's tolerated today?
2: And it's not tolerated today. The thing is, how could you get around it at the creation?
0: Oh, I see what you mean. Well, that's just one of those um, outstanding you know, Bible difficulties that all apologists have to deal with, and I could give you the answer to that. But do you have any question as to the, the, the prohibition in the Old Testament and the prohibition in the New? Okay, that's my point right now, and I'm going to leave it just there, and we'll come back to it. Uh, why was it that at the creation it was... And the answer to that is, how do you avoid it then? And If there's going to be a human race with one first couple, that was necessary but we'll come back to that. Okay. We've been talking about the unity of the law. Previously, I have shown you the necessity of the law. I've also shown you the sufficiency of the law. I'm not going to go back over these points, but you'll find them in your notes if you've been taking notes. The law is necessary. The law is unified. The law is sufficient. This is what I'm going to conclude about the law of God. It's necessary. It's unified and sufficient. So the conclusion to the normative perspective back to our triangle this will be our last point tonight the goal of ethics the kingdom of God the situation drives us to the law the motive of Christian ethics love or the moral agent conscience drives us to the law of God and as we study the standard of God's law we've seen why it is an advantage over these two in some ways we've seen why that law is necessary for ethics We've seen that the law of God is unified through Scripture. We've also seen the sufficiency of the law. So the conclusion of the matter is for all the weeks we've been studying, okay? so everybody wake up for one sentence. This is the point. It's not the only point, but it is a point. We must, in ethics, go to God's law, all of God's law, and only God's law. See if I would have said that the first night? We needed all the rest huh let me say it again we must in ethics go to god's law all of god's law and only god's law let me show you on the chart now we must in ethics it is necessary to go to god's law all of god's law because of its unity and only god's law because of its sufficiency christian ethics can be done as an exposition of the law of god it's necessary To look at all of the law, and it's sufficient to look at all of the law. If we do this, we will find out how Christians should live. Therefore, we have shown already that the goal of ethics is a sufficient way of doing ethics. The motive of ethics is a sufficient way of doing ethics. And the standard, or the law of God, is a sufficient way of doing ethics. And and we've seen also that if one has the law of God, he is forced to the goal. Because one of the laws God gives is to pursue first his kingdom. If we start with the law of God, we've got to be pressed to the motive because one of the laws is to love your neighbor as yourself. If we start with the kingdom of God, we see that we're forced back to the motive because we have to have pure motives if we're going to worship the king. And we must obey the standards of the king. So if we're going to pursue God's glory, we must follow his standards. On the other hand, if you start with the motive, love, then you've got to know how love applies to your situation. To be genuinely loving, you're forced to look at the goal and, of course, love is the fulfillment of the law, so you're forced back to the law. Okay. So, go from this to this, and from this to this, this to this, and this to this, this to this, this to this, and this to this. And that's the point about the triangle. Any questions before we break up tonight? Yes. You're
1: talking about going only to God's law. Are you, in what sense do you mean that?
0: Um, well, because of the sufficiency of the law. We don't have to go to the to some special revelation of the Holy Spirit and guidance today. We don't have to go to natural revelation. If we go to the Scriptures, we'll find all that we need for moral living. Remember Paul said the man of God will be perfectly equipped unto every good work. That's what I meant. That we go only to the law. We don't have to go outside of uh, God's revelation to get our standards of morality. I
2: was going to say that whenever you say that, I have to think back to something else you said because that's for our standard. because you've already said earlier because we have to eventually... So that's where we get... Well, contact. we have
0: to get... We
3: have to go
0: into the facts. Oh, yeah, when we're, making a, when we're making a decision, you've got to have your standard. Now, that can be the principle of, of God's kingdom or the motive of love or a standard from, from the Scriptures like a law. Well, you've got to have that from God, and then you... Okay, so you have your principle, then you have the facts, and then you can draw a conclusion from the principle and facts. Do you understand? So we only go to God's law for our principles of morality. We don't go to God's law to find out whether washing machines work this way or that way. Any other questions? We've been very patient. We, uh, next week, we'll take up... I'm going to give you the reading assignment before we break up, I guess. Next week... Oh, I didn't bring it with me. I won't give it to you. Next week, we're going to take up the question of Adiaphora, uh, situation, ethics, hierarchicalism, and so forth in the first hour. Um, and then in the second hour, we'll start exegeting the law of God. Uh, well, I'll try to do commandments one and two next week, and then we'll finish out the final weeks with the rest of the commandments and their modern application. Thank you. Okay.